Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line. And now, here are your hosts, award-winning influencer and pioneering author of seven books, Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. Yeah, and I think that's a real big differentiator. And, and clearly, I would encourage... Uh, I think it drives more loyalty from someone that knows that they've got that flexibility there than trying to hide it. I think that that trying to hide it and doing all the things you're saying about the gym membership creates a lot of resentment. This can provide a more attractive way of paying for things. As you said, like the primary one is we're breaking up large costs into small costs and small costs are more palatable. And so the idea is instead of giving you one large bill, I'm gonna give you a series of small bills and each of those small bills, as you just said, feel like nothing. Under a subscription model, it would be a monthly fee to have access to your heated seats and they could shut it off remotely at any time. <laughs> Ryan, I've got a bit of a secret to tell you, mate. Oh, I'm excited. Apple are coming out with a new product, okay? So this is your secret, an Apple product announcement? Do, do they not generally hold massive conferences and press releases <laughs> for this? this? This is your secret. Well, <laughs> just don't release it to everybody. But they're coming out with what it looks to be some form of subscription service. So I phoned Tim Cook the other day and said, can I buy one? I don't know what it is. <laughs> But I'm sure I'll want it. <laughs> okay, I'm back in. I believe you. No, no. <laughs> no. Reading the paper the other day, and it looks like a couple of interesting things. And we're going to be today talking about subscription, this subscription economy and why subscriptions are sort of everywhere. And this is all kicked off because I, I actually did read a news clipping the other day that basically said that Apple are, are starting to play about with doing subscriptions for iPhones. It's not for everybody yet. Sadly, not for me, but they're testing it. I saw the headlines, but can you explain what that means? Is that different than like buying on installment? Like what does a subscription mean for not just your cell service, but for the phone itself? So the honest answer is, is I don't know, but I want one. <laughs> that was actually the most honest answer. Yeah. No, the honest answer is, is I don't know, because it okay. does raise interesting questions about well, what is the difference then between a subscription service and just paying it over a two-year period? I think one of the answers to that is that you don't end up owning it. I suspect you're right. I think that's probably true. You'd, you'd need to mail the phone back at some point if you stopped paying. Yeah. A couple of other things that tie in here before we get into talk about why is the subscription economy so popular and some of the theories behind it, etc., is that when you look at uh, recent Apple results, yeah, what you find is that in the last year, they've increased their subscriptions revenue, their services revenue. It's up by 24% year on year. Hmm. Yeah? So I guess it's no wonder that they're starting to turn their attentions to this. And we'll put a link in the show notes so you can read it yourself. But it's up to $19 billion. Yeah, which probably is loose change for Apple to be totally yeah, honest with you. That's also true. 
<laughs> but up 24%, you can understand why the companies are going this way. Today, as I said, we're going we're gonna to talk about this whole subscription economy and, and why, why is it becoming so prevalent everywhere. So as usual, mate, I'm going to let you get a word in edgeways. What's happening? So, I mean, before we dig into the theories, I think it's worth exploring a few of the examples to just kind of give people an idea of the breadth of this. So like uh, buying your phone on a subscription or paying for phone usage on subscription is, is new, but it's, it also feels familiar because we're already paying our cell service uh, a monthly subscription rate. There are more radical examples that are, are coming out. Um, like I've heard that a lot of car companies are now planning on offering upgrades on a service model. So one example would be heated seats. So if you have heated seats in your car, that's an option that you pay for when you buy the car. Under a subscription model, it would be a monthly fee to have access to your heated seats and they could shut it off remotely at any time. <laughs> uh, this is not a joke. That is 100% serious something that the car industry is You're, you're driving down the road and suddenly your seat goes cold because you haven't paid the bill. Are you kidding? <laughs> what, what happens if you forget to pay your subscription for your brakes? Then, you know. Uh, and we've seen examples of this already. So Can they give out electric a... shocks to people that they that haven't paid their bills? <laughs> oh, do you, do you want us to turn off the electric shocks? That's, that's a subscription you need to pay for. But we saw some examples of this, for example, where... Tesla sold multiple versions of their car that had different battery life to it. And most of the people who bought them assumed that it was because they had different batteries. And it turned out it was just a software block. So there was an emergency, like a hurricane or something, and people were, were trying to evacuate. And so Tesla kindly shut off the software block so that everybody could have full access to their batteries as they were trying to flee this, this hurricane which was great, but it also created this huge PR problem for them where people were like, wait a minute, the car could physically do this all the time and you were just remotely shutting off certain options? Here's another one that I, I read the other day. This is from a, a report from a test in their report on um, US food and beverage. We'll stick a link in the, in the show notes. But 78% of Gen Z would pay a subscription for 24-7 access to grocery stores. Okay, so you're paying 70, 70, in fact, I apologize, it's 78% of Gen Z would pay a subscription to access a grocery store 24 hours a day. And I was thinking to myself, you're going to pay a subscription. You just need to get a life. I don't know about getting a subscription. I already have some 24-hour grocery stores near me. Well, don't tell you that, mate. You're going to suddenly be flooded with a load of Gen Z people. What, what, yeah? am, I, what am I paying for? <laughs> They they would pay for access. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. So not even paying for food. We're just paying for the privilege of shopping for food. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Gen Z, but, we need to have a conversation. Yeah. Well, and and it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you read stats like that, and my immediate reaction was, nah, surely that's not the case. And clearly it is. Okay. The danger is, is that what I'm doing is putting my own values yes. on that. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, it's really important from a marketing perspective that you take that type of information because now I could be ignoring that marketplace and suddenly that's a 
big chunk of my, my business that I'm missing. Normally, I would agree with you. Like, it is super important to not overlay our own biases. We need to listen to the customer directly. Normally, that's true. But in this case, for Gen Z, now Gen Z, you can just ignore. Like, just ignore anything that you say. <laughs> don't even worry about it. It's fine. You, you say that as the parent of some Gen Zs, don't you? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. So the other stat from a test consumer research was 65% of Americans are either actively looking for new product subscriptions or open-minded to them, okay? So again, that made me go, wow, not only is there this sort of surge of subscriptions, things like Netflix and Apple Plus, and I, I think in a podcast a little while ago, I talked to you about um, Jaguar cars doing a single mm -hmm. pivot where you could do a car and a subscription. But 65% of Americans are actively looking for those product subscriptions. You can subscribe to anything. So you can set up an, an auto subscription on Amazon for literally anything. So they can, you know, send you paper towels on a schedule that you set up. There are all of these subscription box services, these curation services where they'll, you know, send you clothing or collectibles or, or things related to your hobby. I saw there's one related to like art products. You'll just pay for it and then monthly it'll show up. So let me give you one more example, and then I'm going to ask you to tell us what's happening from that theory perspective. Yeah. So I was very proud of myself because I've cut the cable. Yeah. Okay. And I've reduced all the packages that I've, I've had from my cable provider. Did you actually cancel the service or did you literally go out and cut the cable and think that you were done? <laughs> no, I had this long conversation about why I didn't want to, uh, to give them any more <laughs> you money needed to anymore. persuade them that you really wanted to. Oh, that's nightmare. painful. But I've then got, I've now got Netflix, which I've obviously had for some time. Prime, which I've had for some time. Apple Plus, yeah. The other day I started to add all of those up and I suddenly thought, bloody hell, I'm spending more money now than I, I was before. And I thought I was doing really good by saving money. And that made me start to think of this from a that psychological viewpoint because I don't even know what Netflix is. And now $15, I think, something like that we pay. I can't remember. Probably more than that, Colin. Don't check your bill. That's probably more than that, I think. Yeah, it probably is. But, but even if it's $20, you just go... It's not a lot of money. Yes. Yeah. Where, right. and though, but those little bits of it's not a lot of money, just again, thinking all the software that we get. I mean, even for the service that we're recording this on, uh, which is a thing called Zencaster, you know, you're paying a subscription. So, what's happening from that price point perspective of going rather than pay for a whole year and that's going to be. $500, you know, it's going to be $15 a, a month. What's what's happening there? There's kind of two perspectives we can talk about this from. We can talk about it from what's going on in the minds of the consumer and why people would or would not find this attractive. And then we can also talk about it from the perspective of the firms. Like, why are firms pushing in this direction? What are they getting out of it? Do you have a preference for which of those we start with? Let's start with a customer. I always start with a customer. So from the customer's perspective, this can provide a more attractive way of paying for things. As you said, like the primary one is we're breaking up large costs into small costs and small costs are more palatable. And so sometimes this is called like an a la carte model or a 
a two-part pricing model or a multi-part pricing model. The idea is instead of giving you one large bill, I'm going to give you a series of small bills. And each of those small bills, as you just said, feel like nothing or feel like not much, as opposed to one large one, which feels like a lot more. The psychology behind that is pretty straightforward. We tend to be bad at kind of aggregating and remembering at like a precise numerical level. And so if it slides under your, your notice each month because it's not big enough to draw your attention, then you just, you never think about it. And so that can, that can actually provide some psychological comfort. You know, you're not distressed by these large builds. It can though, and again, I, I guess I'm blurring these a little bit because from the company's perspective, clearly that's an advantage to them, right? Like yeah. I might reject you if it was $200 a year, but if you divide that up over months, then it feels like nothing. And so I'm, I'm willing to, to buy from you. There are even firms who walk an ethical line and in some cases cross an ethical line by kind of tricking people into this. So there are a number of, of software firms. You see a lot of gaming apps that, that did this. I think they've started to crack down on it more where if you play the game once, it automatically signs you up for this monthly fee and you don't know about it unless you really check your bills very closely. There are a lot of kids games that would do that, which was really underhanded where if your child downloads a game to play, then all of a sudden it signs you up for a $5 a month fee to play the game and the parents weren't aware of it. There's even less ethically, there's less black and white cases that are still questionable. I had a a colleague who spoke with an executive at a firm that sold dial-up internet service. This is like back in the day, but it was at, at a point where most people had already switched over to broadband. And so this company existed selling a service that was essentially obsolete. And as far as he could tell, their entire business plan was to just not make any noise (laughs) because they had all of these customers who were paying them a monthly subscription fee for this dial-up internet and hardly any of them were using it. And most of them had just forgotten that they had signed up for it years before. And so they were, you know, losing 10, 15, $20 a month. And as soon as they noticed, they would cancel. But as long as this firm didn't make any noise, they would just keep siphoning off revenue. That's one of the things that I think differentiates these organizations. Yes. So uh, I've got a number of subscriptions, as I'm sure everybody has. I think for me, Netflix is the best example of this from a good perspective, which is canceling it or putting it on hold is really simple. Yeah. It's literally, they don't try and hide it. It's literally within a couple of clicks, you can put it on hold. There are other organizations where you can't. And they will, uh, the other day I signed up for a um, uh, one of these uh, photo stock images. To try to cancel that was a nightmare. Yeah, gym memberships are the, the prototypical example. If you try to cancel a gym membership, they make you meet with the manager. They make you jump through hoops. They might require like a written signature. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a real big differentiator. And, and clearly, I would encourage, uh, I think it drives more loyalty from someone that knows that they've got that flexibility there than trying to hide it. I think that that trying to hide it and doing all the things you're saying about the gym membership creates a lot of resentment. Oh, absolutely. And it's not uncommon for people who have quit Netflix to go back. Whereas people who have quit a gym know that that process was so terrible that they would never sign up for that gym again. And so you do, you have some, I mean, Netflix would obviously prefer that you stay their customer the whole time, 
But a, a close second is that if you do drop off, that you would be willing to pick it back up again at some point. Here is Anna talking on the show. Hi, Colin and Ryan. I'm in a pickle. How do you operationalize your journey mapping? We don't want CX to become some fluffy thing that is not practical enough. Therefore, we want practical steps on how to get started the right way. Thank you. Anna's pickle was wonderful. Would you like to appear on the show just like Anna did? If you want to record your pickle, go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash pickle and look for the big red record button. We'd love to hear from you too. Isn't there this whole area of mental accounting taking place as well? Perhaps you could explain what that is to the uninitiated. Mental accounting plays very much into this, this principle that you were just talking about, where if we break up large costs into small costs, they feel like less. Mental accounting is essentially the idea that we we account for some costs in these psychological buckets in ways that are, are sometimes not optimal financially. And so if it's a small enough cost, a lot of times we can we can slip it into a bucket at where it's not going to cause us any problems. Or if it's a large enough expense, then it's going to be something that requires more attention and maybe something that's easier for us to reject or not renew, for example. So an example of that would be that if my daughter has a vacation fund, so every month she sort of goes, I'm putting X amount of dollars into my vacation fund. And that's not just mental accounting, but that's physical accounting. But if you then talk to her, she will turn around and say, well, I haven't got much money. And you go, yeah, but half it's in the vacation fund. Right. So, <laughs> you have. It's just that you're ignoring that as because that's put over there and you're not touching it, which I, I absolutely admire her for. But, you know, it's not looking at the true picture, is it? Yeah. And from a mental counting perspective, a lot of times these subscriptions slip into the background and are not accounted for at all. So, for example, like I have Amazon Prime, which is is about more than kind of the video streaming that I get. But if we look at the video streaming part of it, through Amazon, I, there are a bunch of things that I can stream for free through Amazon Prime. And then you can also rent or buy digital video content from them. But I account for those two things in very different ways. Like the subscription I've already kind of paid for. So that's free, right? The stuff on Amazon Prime, I register as free. And so, but then if I, it comes time where I want to like rent a movie, that is an additional cost, but it feels like a lot of money to me. Like, ah, oh, do I really want to spend an extra $12 to watch this movie now when I've got this free content that I could watch otherwise? Whereas the subscription itself is usually not tallied as uh, an expense because it's now just part of the background. So some in some cases, the subscription itself doesn't even go into the appropriate mental account. It goes into this like background of expenses that we don't worry about. Yeah. And I think it's a gain, isn't it? Because it is just, it's partly it's the amount. Let me build on the, your example here, because when I subscribed to Amazon Prime, it was because I wanted quicker deliveries. Yeah. Okay. Now the irony is, is that I use the Amazon delivery day. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, right? Uh-uh, but you can actually you can actually select when you're checking out. 
to oh, have everything delivered on one so day. So you don't get a million packages. Correct. Well, yeah. So A, you don't get a million packages and B, that you're helping the environment that you haven't got yeah, a yeah, van blah, blah, turning blah. up on the Tell top. me about my convenience again. Yeah. But the overall issue is for me is I bought Prime because I've got deliveries, Yeah. And then uh, now you've it out of and now, <laughs> and now I've, and I'm going, ah, well, am I doing that then? That's interesting, actually, because I was just about to say, I'm sure there are other advantages. I don't know what they are, actually, other than the, the video thing. This leads to another consumer psychology point, which is a lot of times once we've signed up for these services they become painful for us to cancel because of loss aversion. So there are people who will sign up strategically for Netflix and then watch the two or three series that everybody's been talking about that they want to, and then they'll shut it off and then wait six months and then sign back up for a few more weeks. Which is the reason why the Oscars, there was so much issue around the winners of the Oscar. I think it was that Coda film, wasn't it? That's only available on Apple, I think it was. I can't mm. remember which one it is now. I think that's right. I was sitting there as I was watching it, thinking to myself, yeah, so that means that loads of people are now going to sign up for Apple just to be able to, to watch the thing. And then the question is, will they cancel it afterwards, right? Because if you signed up for one thing, like, I mean, you with your Prime, if you sign up for one thing, then presumably once you've taken that advantage, you should shut it off. But a lot of times we don't. Sometimes we just forget but a lot of times there's loss aversion involved there. Like Hulu is an example. So I mostly watch HBO and uh, Netflix. Like those are overwhelmingly the video streaming services that I use. I, I watch some stuff on, on Amazon as well. Hulu, hardly ever. But every once in a while, every once in a while I will. And so I feel like I don't want to give that up in case, in case I, I would want to go to one of those shows at some point or in case there was something that was only available there. And so there's a lot of that, like not wanting to give up on something that you already have gotten used to. And obviously the big advantage for the organization is that they've got regular amounts of money coming in. So again, if I go back in, into my, my past, which is working for telecoms, then we used to know that people were signing up for a telephone and therefore there was an, a, a rental coming in for the telephone and blah, 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 blah. So you knew that there was next year, there was at least this amount of revenue that you were pulling in. It's not, wasn't based upon a one-off sale. You know, you've got this constant revenue plus whatever else that you could sell on the top of it. Yeah. So there, from a company's perspective, there are a bunch of advantages to a subscription model. One of them is like you're saying, it's kind of smoothing out the revenue so that we have more of this recurring revenue. So that's great. A lot of times the revenue is structured so that the customer pays more overall for it. So I assume that the payment for a heated seat in a car would end up being much more over the lifetime of the car than it would if I just paid for that heated seat up front. No, that's interesting because you know what you just made me thought think about? Companies are evil. <laughs> Funny. No, I wasn't thinking that. Oh, well, maybe you should, because that sounds evil to me. No, go ahead. I was thinking, yeah, but I live in Florida. Yeah. And a heated seat is not necessarily the thing that I want, which, but it could be during the wintertime. So it then made me start to go into the whole thought around sort of segmentation. And there must be 
there must be debates that people like that are having in organizations about those types of things. So I think that that's a great example where, so that would be the most benevolent take on this, where it may be that... What you mean, other than companies are evil? Yeah, well, that's still true. <laughs> but the, there may be a benevolent take on this where like, if, if I sold a car to you in Florida, you would say, no, I don't want the heated seat option for it. Like, I'm not going to pay for that. And so yeah. that wouldn't be installed in the car. And then you would never have that option. Whereas under your subscription model, it could be that you would make that decision rationally. You live in Florida. Why would you need heated seats? And then maybe for a couple of months every winter, you realize I would actually be more comfortable having that seat. And then now they have the option of turning that on at any time. So you don't need to go back to the dealership and have it installed. It's always there and it's always available for you if you need it. That's the benevolent option. It seems like very clearly to me, the main driver for companies of moving to subscription models for some of the stuff that they previously sold outright is because there's the opportunity for a lot more revenue. And that's what they're, they're going to do. There are lots of these advantages, right? The segmentation is absolutely one. It makes it easier to segment long-term revenue streams. There's the opportunity for multiple revenue streams. So if I buy a car with heated seats and then I sell it to somebody else, that secondary owner is going to have the heated seats that I paid for because that's just part of what we did. There are now cases that are coming up where like, for instance, somebody sells a Tesla where they've upgraded everything. And then when they, it gets to the second owner and the, the ownership papers clear, all of those options are now shut off. And so now the new owner needs to have a new contract with Tesla in order to turn those options back on. So now Tesla has the opportunity for multiple potential revenue streams over long term, whereas previously they, they wouldn't. No, no, that makes a, a hell of a lot of sense it was making me it was making me think about whether the advantages of going or how you could turn this into being a proactive service so one of the great things about these models is that you can see how your customers are using them so you're gathering lots of data aren't you again it's not just a one and done because if you're sensible like Tesla, you're monitoring what the customer's doing, you're knowing where they, I guess, where they're going, you're getting all the data from the, the engine. We did an interesting podcast, didn't we, with Tobias about the voice of the product. Does a, an organization have the voice of the product? And it was making me think, Ryan, about this, the links from the sort of the subscription economy to this whole area of customer science that we've been talking about. And again, we'll, if you don't know about customer science, we'll put a, a link in the, in the show notes for a podcast that, that we would recommend that you listen to. But the ability to gather data on what customers are doing and the preferences they've got, and then using that data to provide a better and more proactive experience to them, I think is the, is the really interesting bit here. I think that's a great point. I mean, look at the difference between a company like Gillette, which sells billions of, of razor blades, razors and shavers all over the world all the time, tremendously successful in what they're doing. And a subscription company like Dollar Shave Club or Harry's, you know, Gillette, if they're selling through pharmacies and, and grocery stores, aren't getting any data about the individual users. They're getting these this aggregate data, you know, and they have ways of, of conducting market research. But these subscription services know exactly who you are and they know exactly the, the rate that you're buying and they know which products you like and you don't like. And to your point, like that's an opportunity for 
individual level data analysis that has traditionally not existed. And so when firms engage in these subscription models, I, I think you're right. I think there's an opportunity for a lot more data. And if you think about the one subscription that I, I didn't mention that I have is to Disney Plus. Why do I have it to Disney Plus? Well, my grandkids come around. Therefore, it's then interesting because we've obviously then set up different profiles. So that's like self-segmentation. And obviously, they can start to go, well, actually, so at four o'clock every day, the grandkids are here on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, because we can start to see all of that, them downloading Paw Patrol or whatever. I, I can hear Disney Plus calling you in the background. Like, they, yeah, they want wow. this data now. Like, <laughs> they now know that you you will tell them. It's a great point. And that your point about the profiles is, is especially interesting. I think it's a great one. If you look at, like, Nielsen television data... That was a very labor-intensive process, as I understand it. There was a lot of, like, punching into the the remote, like, who was watching what and who was in the room and all these kinds of things. From what I understand, that data was kind of notoriously not great. Like, people would enter and leave the room, and you were never really sure who was watching what, and sometimes the TV was just on. With a lot of these streaming services with their profiles, you do start to get more of this granular data about, like, who within the family is potentially choosing these options and, and who's watching what. And so, yeah, like it's a really rich source of data. I think it's great. Yeah, no, absolutely. What's the so what then behind this? What is your advice to do? This is likely to work in terms of generating more revenue for firms. There's lots of psychology suggesting that people will respond positively to it. There's lots of advantages to firms. So let me end with a big caution to firms. To me, this massive shift to subscription feels like a tragedy of the commons scenario. So have you have you heard of that phrase, tragedy of the commons? No. It's this great metaphor that economists came up with that I, I really like. So the, the metaphor goes back to like old time villages where a bunch of us were kind of poor villagers and we each had a little bit of livestock. So I've got two cows and Colin, you've got six sheep and none of us were rich enough to have large plots of land that we could you know send our, our animals out to graze on. So instead, the whole village had a commons, had this common field. And then everybody in the village would send their animals out to graze and then collect them at the end of the day. Um, and it worked great. The tragedy of it, the problem is that when we've got a common resource like that, there's individual pressure for us to take more advantage of it. So I own two cows. I could add a third cow. It's not going to cost me anything more to feed that cow. I'm just sending it out to the commons. And now I've got more milk and butter and, and cheese that I can sell. And you could add a few more head of sheep and it doesn't cost you anything. And so what almost always ends up happening in these situations is everybody takes just a little bit more of this until it ruins the common. There's now nothing, like it, it kills the field. Now nobody can feed their I animals. told you you shouldn't have bought that extra cow. It's all down to you. And I'm tired of you like telling me I can't <laughs> buy more cows. You're not the cow boss. <laughs> but no, this, this is exactly like each of us is acting rationally. Each of us is probably thinking that we're being fair. Like I'm, you know, I'm only adding one cow like that's not going to kill anything but when everybody does it then that's what happens i think that's what's happening here at an individual level i should rephrase i think there's the danger of that happening here at an individual level 
customers respond to these subscriptions for the reasons we've talked about. At the level of the individual firm, it makes sense for them to do it. But I think when all these firms are now moving in this direction at the same time, you're going to start to see a backlash from customers. So the parallel I would draw is with telemarketing. In like, especially in the 80s and the 90s, telemarketing was this common resource among firms. Like it was really cheap to do. The burden of an individual call on an individual customer was not that high. All these firms were like, oh, we'll just call a few more people. We'll sell a few more things this way. And then I don't know what it was like in the UK or if you remember from your time in the States, but in the 90s, uh, there was a period of time where people were getting dozens of sales calls a day, interrupting their meals. It was like it was a huge problem. And so Congress stepped in and laid down these rather draconian laws, slapping huge fines on people who would, would do this. And that it killed that industry. It dramatically reduced telemarketing. Same thing with emails, right? Emails for a while were a very effective way to reach new customers. And then everybody started doing it and it ruined that kind of common good. Yeah. I think you're going to see the same thing. You were listing off your subscription TV services. At some point, it's just too much and you'll see people start to cancel them. I'm already very suspicious of any subscription because I I feel like there's the danger it'll be a ripoff, that I'll forget about it. I'll end up paying too much for it. I've already started to see services pop up that will manage your subscriptions for you. And so if you don't use them for a while, it'll automatically cancel it for you. I don't think this is going to be the large scale opportunity that firms think that it will be because there will be too much of it. And I think customers will respond negatively. I agree. And I, and I think the issue goes back to customer experience, which is those organizations that provide the best experience, that provide the best flexibility and things like that we've talked about in terms of the um, cancellation, you know, the biggest flexibility will win out and those that don't will drop off the bottom. I think that's true. I hope that's been of use to everybody today and we look forward to talking to you next week. Okay, cheers. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcasts. We look forward to talking with you next time on The Intuitive Customer. The Intuitive Customer.